Thank you, Jess. Uh, my two cents would be if you are wanting to know what to bring for brunch service, safe bet is bacon. So when in doubt, go bacon. You could do like bacon bacon, double smoked bacon from Thurns, which is fantastic if you haven't had that. You can do that million dollar bacon where they bake that like crusty stuff on it. That's, that's really good. And then there's just bacon. So those are my options for you guys that I would suggest as well. So, um, all right. So a uh, couple things in my mind. Uh, thank you for. Wes figures it out all every time. So um, a couple things. Thank you guys for the worship set this morning, man. That last song we're singing just so good. Confess my worth and unworthiness. What a what a sweet lyric. You know, like when we just kind of bop into God, when we first start thinking about God, we think such wrong thoughts about what's going on, right? Who's going to bop into God and think about my, I'm here to confess my worth and my unworthiness. It's really interesting. Can you unfold that statement to your friends? Can you, does it resonate with your heart, my worth and my unworthiness? Like, what is the unworthiness? What is the worth? Well, maybe today we'll help you a little bit. And if not, we would love to help you conversationally, be able to have that beat is the theme of your heart. And actually, so you can explain it to your friends that need it so badly. Our, Titus, our text today is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Today's sermon is a little bit funky. We've been in the book of Romans now for a number of months. We've made our way halfway through chapter 5. Um, I've loved it. You know, I'm, I'm 49 years old. I've been doing pastoral ministry for like, I don't know, I don't know, 25 years, something like that. And um, a little longer than that. But I've never tackled Romans because Romans scared me to death. Romans is like just... It's like that, that jungle of goodness with all kinds of complications. Anyway, it's been really fantastic and hard on the study point, this aspect to get through Romans. Uh, I've learned some amazing things, been sharpened in some of the ways that I think, um, and I'm looking forward to it because the jungle ain't over, folks. We're going through Romans 5 and just gets deeper waters for a little while. So, um, but you don't, have, you don't have to preach it. You get to like watch us preach it, think it through, study it, and process it together because the depths of it are so helpful to our hearts. In fact, in this book, and I won't point us here, but in the beginning of Titus, a book written uh, by Paul to one of his disciples, a guy named Titus, um, he introduces the beginning of it like, I'm writing this book, I'm writing this book for the knowledge that's in Jesus Christ because now that knowledge flows flourishing. You can't flourish as, as a human unless you're under Jesus and you can't flourish in Jesus unless you know who he is and what he's doing and how things work. And so the information Jesus is pouring out about himself is really, really worthwhile, even if it is beyond us. And it is beyond us because he is beyond us. He is exposing us to things that are far greater than us. And so it's new information. It's new ways of thinking. Um, and it can be kind of mentally sweaty at times. And at times it's just easy, right? So the book has been amazing. Today we're taking a diversion into Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. The reason being this, this kind of comes out of um, a shepherding perspective. So we are Cross City Church, and you're, maybe you're our guest or visitor today, or maybe you're just popping in online from wherever. Um, so we are God's family, right? And God has put in our church. Our church is led by a group of pastors, pastoral team. I'm one of them. I happen to do the most teaching, um, but I'm just one of them. And God has called us to do something, to shepherd the flock of God. We are the flock of God, right? Shepherd the flock of God. He hasn't called us to make an amazing organization, um, a mind-blowing building, um, though it's mind-blowing here. Um, we're super thankful for it. If this is your first time here, you don't know how thankful we are for a building to, to be in. 
which by the way, we just got word we're gonna have this building for yet another 18 months, so we're super thankful for that. It's a great provision of the Lord. And uh, the Lord has provided, the Lord has given this building for another 18 months, and then a week and a half ago, the Lord gave us a lawnmower to mow our grass. And then on Tuesday, the Lord took it away. Someone stole it. So, uh, so we'll keep you posted. Yeah, they just came out here in the middle of the day, one in the afternoon, with a steel saw and cut, the, cut, cut through a steel storage banner to uh, drive off in a non-speedy haste in our lawnmower. So the Lord does give and takes away, and he's good. So as we think through shepherding God's people, uh, part of one of the things we do is we should reflect on, pastorally reflect on and pray for the church. And, and so at times, the Lord will direct our minds to something. And, and, and the other day, I was sitting there thinking and praying. I don't know, this is probably two, three weeks ago. I'm sitting there thinking and praying about a church. And, and um, in order to do that, I, and in my mind, sometimes I kind of walk around a place. And I kind of look at it from different angles. And, um, and in walking around the place, you may see something that you couldn't see from a certain angle. And I saw something a few weeks back that made me really think and, and kind of ponder. And I'm still a little bit mystified by it. Okay? So I've been talking to our leaders about this, our pastoral team about this. And so meanwhile, I'm going through Titus in my, my quiet time. So my time with Jesus, I'm reading through the book of Titus. And that observation kind of lined up with some of the things I'm reading in the book of Titus. And um, I've read Titus time and time again. Um, but when you read the living word of God, all of a sudden things pop out to you on your 40th reading of a book that didn't on your 39th reading of the book. So that's the origin of it. This comes from like a shepherding perspective of our church. So if you're not part of our church, I think there's plenty here to learn. But we're kind of talking at a church level here, church family level. And um, I, I want to encourage you can do this. You can take this as a church individually or as a church. We can take it one of two ways. Um, we can take it as something that's broken. So roofs, when roofs don't function well, that's something broken. That's something disappointing. So, for instance, I was in my office this morning. It started raining. And all of a sudden, I heard it sound like, I don't know, a quarter of a gallon of water being dumped on the floor. And I go in the bathroom, and there's a, uh, an apparent hole in the roof. And we've known it's in there, but it just, boosh, poured in this morning. Now, my perspective to said hole in the roof is that's disappointing. That is an uh, impediment to progress. That's something we need to get repaired. I don't look at that and go, sweet, what an opportunity for advancement for uh, making our roof better. And let's put a second story on that. We can't do this. This is not an opportunity for advancement. This is a repair. But sometimes things are opportunities for advancement. So in, our, in the Burns household right now, um, oh, I can talk because they're watching kids right now. Um, uh, we have a lot of, well, it wasn't you. It's, it's Avery. Okay, so, um, so, so we ha we're, working on, we're working on volleyball in our house, and, um, and one of my children, which should remain unnamed, but she made me name her on accident, um, is diligent about it, like gritty teeth, anxious about it, likes it, right? And recently has become aware of a, of a hole in her vertical jump game. And so, man, she is every, every day this week with, along with mom, they've been going to the gym, they go in the park, and they're working on form, right? Because when she sees a hole in her game, it's not like, dang it, I got a weakness, it's like, oh, the opportunity to advance. Like, oh, oh, an opportunity for greater joy. An opportunity for just world domination, <laughs> if I can get this up and learn how to swing. So there's been this talk this week about how uh, we've learned how to get the hands back and to explode more, higher, and stuff like that. 
So um, you can, we can come at these things and look at something we find about ourselves, the church family or individually, as like, oh, gosh, I guess I'm not as good as I thought I was. Oh, we were sufficient, but now we've got a hole in the roof. That's dumb. That's not gospel thinking because God tells us he can refine us. Or we can come at it and look at this and say, okay, ooh, opportunity for repentance. Because in the gospel, we're not ashamed of repentance. We talk about repentance all the time. I'm a repenter, and if you know Jesus, you're a repenter. We're not going to hide that. If you don't know Jesus, welcome to a bunch of repenters. We're not going to hide that either. So we can look at this, and this is what I want to call us to, to look at what I'm going to share today as an opportunity to repent and grow. It's an opportunity for advancement. And so um, I'm going to welcome you into it. Think about it. So with, with me, would you guys please turn to Titus chapter 2, verses, um, starting in verse 11. And if this is your first time here, uh, well, I'd like to welcome you to my technological difficulties that I have every single week. And so today, I actually don't even have a, I really have a slideshow for you. I have one slide. I don't even have bullet points. You're going to have to live with that, all right? Sorry, Jess. Just one slide today. Um, as we are in our, our text today, um, the book of Titus is this. Here's the context of the book of Titus. It's written by Paul. Paul is one of the official spokesmen of Jesus, particularly to the non-Jewish people around the world, the Mediterranean at that time. And Paul, at the end of his ministry, is handing over things to a couple of his main disciples, a guy named Timothy and a guy named Titus. Timothy gets two books. Titus just gets one. This is the Titus. And the context of Titus is that God, that Paul has commissioned Titus to go around to the cities that Paul's ministered in and to establish pastors, elders in those places. And so the gospel's gone there. It's taken root. People have been growing. People have been able to mature in their faith. And now it's time for, for Paul to lock that in into local, localized leadership and groups of elder pastors. Okay? That's the context. And what they were facing was this. God's people were hitting wrong teachings, flowing from wrong lives, filled with wrong passions. This, at a teacher level, at a teacher level. In these places, because they didn't have pastoral teams yet to guard people, wrong teachers who were living lives in wrong ways were teaching wrong things, and it was coming out of wrong passions in their hearts. So again and again and again, this book is loaded with the battlement against that. Who does a right teacher look like? What does their lives look like? What is the right teaching and the change in mindset? So that's the context of the book. And so it's one of the reasons that the word good is found so often in this book, uniquely so in the New Testament. It's a lot about good inside the book of Titus. So look at verse 11. I'm gonna, um, we're going to jump out of four verses in the middle of this and go. Verse 11 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. So Paul is always tying everything he's saying back up into this kernel, this nugget of what it's all about, right? Grace. Grace. So the grace of God, meaning God giving, God supplying everything, not a half and half deal, but God himself, out of grace, giving to us salvation. Salvation going to what? All people. So he's tying it back up into what is the message of the gospel? The message of the gospel is not your goodness, not your good works. The message of the gospel is the grace of God being brought to all people, Jewish people and all of us non-Jewish people. Wherever you fit in the scope of that, the grace of God is coming to the world through the work of Jesus Christ, bringing salvation to them all. Verse 12. And what is it doing? It's training us to renounce ungodliness, things that are against the character of God, which we all have, 
and worldly passions. So the thinking, the focusing, the fixation. That's not saying evil passions. That's saying worldly passions. Cosmic passions. Just stuff. Not him. Here. Not vertical. Here. Horizontal. So we're renouncing ungodliness and horizontal fixation in our mind. And in its place to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age where we're at. So instead of being thinking in ungodly ways and thinking flat, horizontal, earthly stuff, cabins, vacations, love, relationships, all that kind of stuff, first we think vertical. So away from, away from that earthly stuff into this new self-controlled, which means just not intuitive, impulsive, but self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Can you guys hit me with my gospel slide for me? And I'm going to deploy my overpowered laser here. Oh, what is wrong with this thing? It's bouncing off the wall. What if I bounced it off the wall? No, okay, all right. So um, when we talk about this, the beginning of it, this is where he's setting it up, right? In verse 11, you have the payment stuff. The grace of God, it's not yours, right? It's his. So he provides payment for us to the work of Jesus. And then in the verses, in verse 12, it talks about us renouncing, renouncing ungodliness, worldly passions, and instead bringing us to godly thinking, living lives, right? So there's this, there's this concept of what God's going to do. Just this week, I had a great conversation with a person um, who's heard me teach a lot. Um, and we haven't seen each other for a little while. And we had a discussion, um, and I had a chance to catch up. We're friends. I said, where are you at? And you walk with God. And he's like, I believe. I said, okay, payment. You, you believe what? I believe that Jesus died. Okay, great. I said, but what did he die for? What's he offering you? And he was pretty clear, like, on the fall stuff away from the yuck and all that stuff. But he didn't have a clarity on what he's calling us to. What is being offered to us that will be paid by the work of Jesus? He just wants, in his mind a little bit, I think, to be away from the penalty, the consequences of all. He doesn't hate the stuff in the fall. He just doesn't want the consequences of the stuff in the fall, right? Hell um, and all the, the hardships that come from the fallenness of humanity. He doesn't want that, but he doesn't really hate the fall. He doesn't hate the sin, the ungodliness, the worldly passions. He doesn't hate that. And he definitely doesn't quite yet want to sign things over to Jesus, right? Or Christ would be his king and his treasure. That's not sure yet. So it's, in his view of the gospel, it's away from consequence to, I don't know, but Jesus is going to do it. But in the gospel thinking, we get clear on that. Away from ungodliness to God, to godliness, right? He's offered us this new life underneath him through the work, the grace of Jesus. So try and bring gospel clarity there. So that's verses 11 and 12. That's the last slide. Sorry, that's all you're getting today. Verse 13, waiting for. So here's gonna, he's going to flesh out how it happens. Verse 12, we leave it out of this to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives. By the way, if you want to just read, okay, Titus is a short book. You should go pound this book out a couple times this afternoon. Read it big picture, right? And you're going to see all this good language, and you're going to see self-controlled come into Titus so many times because it's essential. We're not impulsive. We're not just simply following our gut and our flesh all the time, but the new life enabled by Jesus allows us to capture the thoughts and to look to Jesus under the power of the Spirit and to follow him. In fact, it's one of the qualifications of a pastor in this book. And then it's, it's, one, of the, it's one of the traits found in a number of the people types in chapter 2 where God tells the older to teach the younger. And he promotes self-control. Self-control is a vital, central piece of this. We're not just impulsive. 
We're thinking and directing our actions out of the thinking that God's given us. So, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, in verse 13, here is the engine of it. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Okay, I'm going to move through this not extraordinarily slowly because I want to bring this down to particularly the application for Cross City, you and me and us together. So the first part of this is we're waiting for hope. The way he's describing Christians, the grace of God comes and moves us away from godlessness to God. But what happens in our waiting? What's happening in our vision? What are we fixated on? Verse 13, waiting for our blessed, our happy hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So the fundamental work of the gospel is that you are changed into a God lover. You're changed into a person who treasures God, right? A person who looks at him and hopes him. And in the language here, waiting for our hope, the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior to be with him when he comes back. That is the new thing. He's better than cabins. He's better than cars. He's better than ladies. He's better than money. He's better than recognition, social status, accomplishments, yada, 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 all that stuff. Christ is better, and he endures, and he doesn't, he doesn't disappoint. So our new hope is we are people that uniquely kind of stand figuratively and stare into the sky, right? Surrounded by all kinds of goodies and all kinds of possibilities, we stare into the sky because our hope is out there. Our hope is him who will break through the skies and come back and be with us. And when he comes back, it's not just like your mom coming back. He comes back in glory, right? And we saw this actually in our book, in, in Romans uh, 5.2, just recently. Through him we also obtain access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God or boast in it, right? We've banked everything on who he is and everything that's in his character and all of his promises that come with him. We stare looking at him. That's the new people, right? Then he transforms us, he changes our nature changes our ability to look, and so we progressively look out there versus being obsessed with worldly passions. But the, pa- but the hope is not simply passive. It's not like you come to know Jesus, let's say, let's say by the end of the sermon, you don't know the Lord right now, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, I'm not good, I, but I can have God. I can be loved by him if I will let go of my independence and trust Jesus. Jesus promises me, call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. So I can do this right now. Let's say you do that. What's not going to happen is that like poof, all of a sudden you're like, man, I am, my hope is cast on Jesus and nothing else here matters for the rest of your life. It's, it's going to be a battle. There's work put into it. This is reflected in a number of passages. First Timothy chapter 6, Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Uh, you know, you may find that he'll give you love. You may find that he'll give you a cabin. He may, you may find that he'll give you some social status, whatever the things are. But your hope is in him who then provides for us. Right? So it's set your hope. That's what his words here. Set the hope. Because the hope by nature, every day when you wake up, is to be flat. 
It's going to be in the cabin. It's going to be in the friendships. It's going to be people accepting us. It's going to be an accomplishment, ambitions, and business, and name, and those kind of things. And so God calls us, turn it again. Set the hope on fully on God. In verse Peter, chapter 1, verse 13, he says this. Therefore, I mean, listen, listen to this action. Listen to this mental work. This is on your knees in the morning. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So set your hopes on God. Set your hopes fully on the grace of God. Hope is not simply a passive thing. You can't do this without being renewed in Jesus. But once you're renewed in Jesus, the way the work, the work of God happens to the power of the Spirit is that he calls us to action. His word enters us. It just did. It just came into your ears because I said it, right? So your, the word enters you, and it, poof, like, the Spirit causes it to blow up into belief, and we go, and, and we're just not on autopilot then. We say, okay, Jesus, I've heard you. Kind of like I was walking around in Galilee back in the day with you when you're dishing out fish and bread. I've heard your words. And I'm not just going to say to you, I just want more fish and bread. I'm going to listen to what you're going to say. And you said, set your hope off of things here and set your hope on things there, on God. So there's a shift of hope. So the first thing that, that, uh, that typifies us as people who have been saved by God, and I think this is such a, a helpful passage because it's a very unique perspective to the gospel. It's going to say it in some ways different than we usually think about it. The first thing is hope. The grace of God brings you to hope differently. He changes the nature of your heart, enables you to hope, but he will be calling you to activate that, calling you to set that hope on him. And then the second part in our text here is verse 13. He redeems us from lawlessness. So we've set our hope, we're waiting, our happy hope, literally the blessed hope, and we're waiting uh, on him. And verse 14, he redeems us from lawlessness. So part of our universal problem whatever the continent is, is that God has law and we say, we don't care. You wake up, you wake up in this world as a lawbreaker. God is the king. He has law. It's written in our hearts. It's codified and richly poured out in scripture. And you, I know you have because Jesus said he did, and me, we say, I don't care. I got a better law. I got a better sense of right and wrong. I have a better sense of what's going to accomplish things, and so we become all lawbreakers. But here what Christ is doing is he redeems us from lawlessness, and so that's that one-time action of the work of Jesus. You have to be purchased out of lawlessness and out of the penalty of lawlessness. There has to be this one moment in time where Jesus, because of his death on the cross, comes before the Father, because you said, Jesus, I trust you, and he steps in and goes, Father, I'm using what I did on the cross to buy this girl, this guy, out of their punishment and to buy them out of their bondage to slavery of sin. I'm redeeming them out. I'm buying them as my own with my precious blood that I spilled. So in one moment in time, he redeems us from lawlessness, but also in the passage, he talks also not only about how he redeems us positionally, but how he ongoingly changes us into what we've already been declared to be in Jesus. In verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So here, um, away, away from renouncing, this is zero tolerance for, for ourselves in ungodly and worldly passions, which are actions, natural, earthly fixations and passions. So 
A, positionally, he redeems us away from it. And then number two, he trains us, actively trains us. And so that's our conversation right here. I'm about to say, hey, I think we got this issue. And I think that Jesus is about to actively train us away from some worldliness into godliness as a church family. And we don't hide it. So one of the beautiful things I think we can talk about in the gospel is that we don't have an insider-outsider language. We shouldn't. We can talk the same language anywhere. I can sit with the biggest group of God's enemies who don't believe anything, and I can say, okay, here's how the gospel is. Here's who I am. Here's who you are. And now, here's how God's changing me. I'm a repenter, right? I'm a, an active, ongoing repenter. I can just say it. So if you happen to be an enemy of God sitting in the room, um, you can kind of watch us do this. But I want to tell you, you don't have to be an enemy of God. You, you can be a loved son of God by simply looking to him and calling upon him. But until you do, um, that's why we as God's people are going to talk about actively being trained by Jesus because he loves us so much. He loves us so much that he not only makes us this for eternity, but right now, right here in this world, he is helping us by bringing our minds and our eyes out of darkness into more light to get it more clearly for what it is and pull our hearts that way. He's training us away from the stuff. He's sanctifying us is the word. So he's training us. He's positionally placed us, training us away, and then he's putting us to something. Now, you can't be put to something in this passage unless you've been redeemed by Jesus and being trained out of doing something because you can't do the other thing until you quit doing the first thing. We're, by nature, we, we're children of wrath, enemies of God, not listening to him. So we had to be redeemed by the grace of Jesus. And then, actively, we have this habit of waking every morning up and forgetting Jesus a lot of times and kind of doing back the old junk and so he's actively training us away so that, not that we can sit there like, like in, a, in a, one of those sensory pools and not do anything. He's not asking us to be completely sterile individuals. He's actually freeing us away from those things to do something. And it's found in the end of our text to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's hot language in the Bible. Zealous for good works. Not good works, zealous. Like, mmm. Hungry for it. Uh, a mind bent towards it. It's a passion. Worldly passions earlier in the passage. That's what God's pulling us out of. New passions. Zealous for good works. But, but who is it? Just for one second. It's Jesus. He said we're waiting the hopes in Jesus. Who is training us away? And who is making himself, purifying for himself a people? Right? So those people have to quit doing, quit being godless in their thinking. But he wants a people. And he loves the people. It's his family. We are cross state church. We are a subset of that family, right? So we're loved. It's a people. But what are those people characterized? Those people are red-hot zealous for good works. Now, when I read this, and I'm thinking about this, our church and who we are, and I'm reading through, all of a sudden these words started popping out. So if you have your Bible, just keep looking down. So we've just hit verse 14, chapter 2. And just turn the corner. Chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to these words. Remind them, remind them to be, to be uh, submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient and to be ready for every good work, to hear the knuckles crack, right? Oh, that was my knuckles. Like in the passage, there's knuckles here, right? Zealous for good works and just two verses later, ready for every good work. And then gander on down to verse five. He saved us not because of works. Okay, so there's your gospel remembrance. As soon as we start dealing with good works, the first thing we tend to do is think those good works are going to pay God off. No, no, no. 
This is, this is the gospel of grace. You don't ever pay God off. You never try to pay God off. You never ever talk the language of paying God back for anything. Grace. And Jesus says, don't insult by grace. I hold you by grace, right? So the good works will never be used to pay him off or bait him in. Nope. Okay, so we're not doing that in verse 5. But in verse 8, here they come again. The, say, this, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to knuckles crack and devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent. These things are profitable. Verse 14, just keep going. And, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Unfruitful. So, I guess I only gave you half of the, the good works passages in this book. There's a good spread for before here in this passage. So, in this book, again and again and again, good works, good works, good works, good works, because in their context, the false teachers were living non-good works lives, teaching non-good doctrine, because it came out of non-good hearts. They were hearts that were fixated on stuff here. They were trying to make a name for themselves. They are trying to manipulate people, get money, those kind of things. Paul, by the power of the Spirit, is saying, look up, look up. True doctrine of Jesus, taught by true followers of Jesus, expressed by good works all the time, because of a new hope, true hope, that looks at him. But I want to settle in on this portion here. Zealous for good works, ready for good works, devoted to good works. So, so the equation is, if the hope is now set on Jesus, there is a undivorceable outflow of that which is lateral. Ready for good. So what, what is, if the mind is focused on Jesus, the body and the, the lateral action here is on the toes, ready for good works. Looking forward to it. It's not marginal. It's not marginal. It's maximal. Like this is the focus of their lives. Okay, what does good works mean? Good works is simply this. Good works are the opportunities to engage the world on behalf of Christ and as Christ would. Good works, engaging the world on behalf of Christ and as Christ would. And those works will look different for everybody. For some people, and in moments of time, you're feeding a baby, taking out the trash, you're taking a friend to the store, you're just simply listening to somebody, you're paying their bill, you're speaking love to them, you're sharing the gospel with them, you're confronting them, you are burying them, you are marrying them, you are doing whatever you need to do for them, you're giving a kidney for them, to all the way down to writing a note for them. There's all kinds of good works in this world, and God has different ones appointed for each one of us in different phases of life, but he will guide us, and he calls us to be zealous for it. If we really have the hope, we zealous for it. So then let's phase over to cross-city application. So here's what I saw um, as I thought about it. Um, man, this is not universally applied. I'm not saying we're all there at the same levels. Okay? Um, but as I was thinking about our church one day, and I was talking to somebody about something, I started thinking through us all and how we got here at cross-city. And then it came up again and again a couple meetings I have how most of us at Cross City that are part of Cross City aren't here because we were invited by somebody we know. Most of us at Cross City came to Cross City because we found it online. Most of us that way. It's a few exceptions here and there. Awesome, praise God. So, so here's, here's, I think, rightful thinking. God has been at work in us. He is doing a good work. I think the Lord has done tremendous things in me and in us 
to really cause us to lift our hope upon Jesus. Like, I think the Lord really has done great works in that. And number two, I really think that for most of us, and I would say definitely myself included, I love our church family. I mean, I am so incredibly helped by our church family. Um, just recently, Burns family, well, the older part of the Burns family, Scott and Melissa, we just recently joined into the Guac MC. Woo-hoo. Um, and then my kids are going to various MCs. And so, like, really, I'm, I'm going to need this new MC to, to be Christ to me, to help me with these things, and I'm going to help them with these things. I've been so helped by that. And I think most of us, when we talk, usually we're very, very thankful for the church family that God's put us in. So I think God's done two amazing things in us. I think God really has taught us a lot of truth and, and heart truth to look to Jesus. And number two, I think God has done a great thing amongst our body. And I think those things are really true. But yea, verily, when I turn the corner and kind of look this way, I go, huh, that's funny. I think that really we have, as people, loved the things God's taught us. And I think really, our, our people in Cross City love Cross City, but none of us really found, not very many of us found Cross City by Cross City people inviting us to Cross City. Sunday services, fellowship, those kind of things. But it has happened. So right now, I will not embarrass you. But I can point at least to maybe five sets of people sitting here who are here because Cross City people invited you to know Jesus. Cross City people invited you to come hang out Cross City people or come to the service. So I'm not saying we don't do it at all, but I'm saying I think it's a church. We don't do it very much. I don't think that we're very invitational people. That's my premise. I think that Cross City people, though I think we find new delights in Jesus, I think we genuinely do, and have a high delight in God's people, I don't think that we're highly invitational people. And since I know theologically that all actions come from the heart, individually, corporately, uh, I started thinking about it, praying about it, considering it. And um, I have, I have a, um, here's, here's my analysis, okay? And, and then we'll bound down it. We'll go back into Titus. My analysis is this. Um, I absolutely love what God has been doing and is currently doing in us to the praise of his glorious grace in us at Cross City. And yet I think the dynamic shows in Cross City some significant hope um, hope weakness. I think we have some significant hope weakness as a church. And that yields some weakness and zeal for the good of the good works. So I think we have some significant hope weakness, which yields a weak zeal for the good of good works. So this is where I'm just going to get kind of family style here, right? Just kind of talk about it. Um, I'm not going to say that everything I'm going to say is right on about you or about me or about us all, but I just want to think it through. And I want to encourage us to think it through in that way of like, here's our opportunity. I think the Lord is shining a light for us to think about how we could taste joys, newer joys than we've ever tasted before, advancements. This isn't a leaky road. We're not going to be a church where we're just trying to make sure we do it all right and, and stay safe, a sustenance place. We're God's people. He's gathered us together, and he's gathered us so that we'd be zealous for good works. And so when we find something missing, it's an opportunity for us to like think systematically back in about what might be off in our minds. So I, I need you to think about your heart and mind and to think about us as a whole. And we could just go along and talk about it, pray about it, help each other in it, all right? So here's my two, two premises. Number one, I want to call us forward to authentic hoping. I want to call us forward to an authentic hoping. This week... I was up in northern Ohio last week, and um, I have a farmer friend, and he was working on his lawnmower right before someone stole our lawnmower. Yeah. It's a nicer lawnmower. And, um, and he's a super sharp farmer, 
thinker. And he's like, I'm puzzled, man. I've got good gas in this thing. I've got good spark. I've got good air. But I can't get this thing to turn over. So he's thinking systematically about it. He knows that in order for it to turn over and start up, you've got to have gas, got to have fire, got to have air. If you don't know engines, that's how they work. Okay. So he has these three things, but from these supply of things to actually the lawnmower firing up, there's a break somewhere in here. And that's where things get kind of tricky, right? That's why you actually use like a mechanic, is sometimes there's trickiness between the basics and the outflow of these things. And so the truth is, though, before the Lord, when our hope is hot and our thoughts are clear, our Christ are clear, it will work its way up into fruiting. The end of our text says, don't be unfruitful, right? These things are profitable, and they'll keep you from being unfruitful. So there will be a flow of this. So it tells me that we've got to come back to basics, okay? Uh, some of the very foundational things in our hearts. I think that we as a church need to check our sense of hope individually. Where is our heart really fixated? Um, uh, I know he's not going to feel violated by this. I pause slightly because I'm hoping he's not. Um, Scott Rutan, he's, he's our pastor abroad, right? You, we'll probably see them back here in the next year, hopefully. Um, if you've never been here before, if you haven't met the Rutans, they are one of our pastoral families. They live on a different continent, and when they come back, they're boom, right into our pastoral families again. You've got to get to know them. They're amazing people. Scott and Marco Polo the other day just said, hey, I would love for you guys to pray for me that my heart would not be escaping. He's feeling some extra pressures right now, and this is, this is, this is the words of a wise man. He goes, my, my heart has the tendency to escape. And then you get to pray for me that I won't be escaping, but rather sitting before the Lord. What he's saying, in other words, is pray for me that my hope will be on Jesus and not shifting my hope towards fixed solutions on the ground. And I think uh, for us, it's, a, it's a, uh, a really true thing. Colossians 1, verses 4 to 5. Since we heard of your faith, listen to how foundational this is in Christianity to the believers in Colossae. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. There's like this foundational hope, hope shift. But we as believers, even though that is our hope, we, God calls us to set our hope fully. So number one, I want to call us to how are you hoping in Jesus? How am I hoping in Jesus? This is in no way a me versus you thing. So in our guac group, um, uh, I have distinct weaknesses in my hope game. And I really, honestly, need help with it. My brothers and sisters. So Guac group, bring it on. I need, I need your help, and I intend to help you simultaneously because Jesus is the hero and we're not. So are you hoping in Jesus? Um, and, and, and is the passion, the passion of Jesus that caused him to die and rise again, um, is that Jesus who's so passionate to die and rise again to gather from some people, um, is it possible that you've lost hope that he still has that passion? Passionate enough to die and rise again, but not passionate enough to work in your friends and family around you. Like, has he, has he petered out? Has he? Or has your hope shifted that way? Where you have lost hope that Christ is still passionate to save souls. He hasn't. I'm just going to tell you, cheap Bible teaching, he hasn't lost the passion to reach out and gather himself among people. He's not pickled, like stumped by like, man, those people in Columbus in the 2022 never saw someone like that. Christ is strong. Christ is passionate. 
Christ who dies and rises again and says, peace be with you. He's the same Christ who has passion to send his people into the world. And he is gathering for himself a people amongst your friends and family. He's out there working. He's not lacking motivation. Fix your hope on the Jesus that is still saving you. He is, his, his passion to save is stronger than your friend's passions to disobey. So look to Jesus, have hope in Jesus. Just think of this for like a parable. Back in, the, okay, in all three, in three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have this parable of the four soils, right? Um, and the third soil. I would always tell you this. I think that for most of the church, the third soil is the big danger. Do you remember what, in, in the third soil, um, we have alive plants. They're not dead, but they're not fruitful. Do you remember why they're not fruitful? Cares this world, and so the picture of it, thistles have come up over the bush, right? They're, they're, they're shading it, so the sun can't hit it, shaded, and if the, the real, he tells us, what are, the, what are these thistles? They're the cares of this world. Those things cover us and shield us, honestly, from the light of Christ, and we become unfruitful, unfruitful, because hope is lost. We're, we're looking at stuff instead of him. So number one, have we lost hope that Jesus is powerful? Number two, has our hope shifted from him because the thistles of this world have come over the top of us and obscured it? You're thinking about retirement. You're thinking about politics. You're thinking about the cultural stuff around you as it continues to depart from Jesus. Shocker. Um, that this has caught your mind up so much that like it's just these thistles and really the hope of Christ is no longer really penetrating your heart and mind. You're not spending time with him in his word. You're not really praying for him. You're not wielding all he's given to you. Have those thistles come there. And I would say, brothers and sisters, my Guac MC, all of us here at the church, you have, you have the thistles that will obscure the hope. You absolutely do have those because you're not dead yet. Okay, so they're there. You got them in the field. My question is, are you in tune with what the thistles are doing to you? Are they actively pushed back, poisoned, chopped down, trimmed back so you can look? And how do you think I'm doing? As your brother, how do you think my thistles are doing? Because if you love me and care for me, you know I've got to get sun. I've got to have the sun of the hope of Christ hitting me. So as believers, brothers and sisters, hope check. Hope check in you. Hope check in me. Let us help each other. Two things. Look at this. We don't want to have the hope of Jesus obscured by the cares and concerns of this world because they are growing and they will keep growing. And you have to keep pushing them back. And you have to help me push them back in my heart and life. We need each other for that. Uh, some of us are so gifted in this. Uh, we, got, we got some amazing people who are just really gifted in the ability to like say, how you doing? And like really fast, they can go, wow, it's pretty heavy thistles coming from the right. It's this, this, this. And you're like, I don't know, but they can help you with that. Right? And you can help them with that. So hope check number is number one. We have to go back, help each other, look to Jesus on the hope level. Number two. I want to call us to being zealous for good work and its works. I want to call us to be zealous for good work and its works. If Christ is gathering for himself a people that are zealous for good works, devoted for good works, ready for good works, brothers and sisters, that can't be marginal. Your, your time invested in living life out for Christ can't be like, oh, the passive side. I'll get around to it if I can. If I have time between my Netflix shows, and mowing my lawn and remodeling my bathroom and those kind of things, it's not going to work. Christ has saved you. You are a precious possession of him. We are his precious possession. 
and he has saved us to be ready, knuckle crack and ready for ourselves for good works, knowing that it is the good of the good works that matters. He doesn't just want us out there just giving people money, doing nice things. The hope is to do it on behalf of Christ as Christ would do it so people can see him. That is really the hope. So people can see him, that they taste of the glories of Jesus. Good works, in some sense, are kind of like the raft on which the good news of the gospel comes into this world. So we should be ready to be build rafts, ready to build those opportunities so the gospel can be poured out to people. And I think that probably one of the key ways for us to think about this is, are we ready and are we invitational? If God is actually out doing the work around us in our lives, of our friends and family around us, are we watching so that we can invite people? Um, invite them to a couple different things. As God will lead you, just ask him for wisdom. Um, invite them to deeper conversations. Get, what's, up, what's going on under the hood of those people? You don't know anybody until you know the way they think about stuff, right? So invite them to a coffee, a deeper conversation, or say, hey, can we get together? I want to like just get to know you a little bit better, right? Invite them to that. Or maybe then God opens up an opportunity to invite them to Jesus. Actually, open conversations about the gospel where you're working through things and see what they think. Maybe it's to invite them to hear God's word taught. Sunday service, it's a great idea. Maybe uh, your MC time where you have some teaching, it's not a prayer night or something like that. But you can invite them to sit with God's people as we listen. It's kind of safe. We're not going to beat you up. They're, we're not going to beat your friends up, right? They can just come and listen, right? Or maybe it's to actually invite them to God's people. See, we're a service. We are God's people having a worship service right now. But we are at the basis God's people. So we have MCs. We can invite people. Depends on who they are in the situation. Ask God to lead you and what it means for you to invite. But brothers and sisters, I think that if we are zealous for good works, we will be invitational people. And I think it's one of the areas where I think the Lord is opening up perspective. I think that there's a vein in short hopeness in us um, and then hopelessness in the field because we're strangely out there amongst everybody. But I think that often we as CrossFit family don't feel freedom to or know, actually want to or know how to invite people along to stuff, to stuff, deeper things, gospel conversation, visit God's people. So I want to encourage you to think about invitation. What keeps you from inviting? What keeps you from having a heart for the orphaned children of God that you run into? Like when you're thinking through, when you're running into Christians, let's say Christians, and, and you're talking to them, and it's evident to them and to you that they are malnourished. They're not getting good teaching. I don't know what, what church they're part of or what church they're not a part of, but they're not being fed. Like, your heart should break for that. If, our, if we're zealous for good works and we see one of God's children, like, just skinny and emaciated, spiritually speaking, we should say, if they're skinny and emaciated, we say, hey, can I make you a lasagna? Can you come to my house for dinner? Because we're invitational for houses. We say, let me care for this. But if their soul is shriveled, can't we say to them, hey, can can, why don't you come along with me? Sit, sit with me in church service. I, I know where some, some good teaching is. Or maybe you can find them a place to find good teaching. We'll help you with that. If they're outside of the area or it's a different church. Or maybe this, you find God's orphan children that don't have a church home. I, I find this often. But I think that if my heart is in tune with the Lord, when I find God's orphan children who have no church home, my heart should break for them. And it is most reasonable that I should probably invite them. Since God has given me a fantastic church family, and I love you guys. I think some of those amazing people I get to hang out with are you guys. I would love for them to come and hang out with you and get to know my family. It'd be so helpful. How changed would their lives be? I mean, if you think about it, I could just think about it, how amazing the Lord has been to me by our church family 
I would love so many of my friends and family to have you guys as their family too. So think through terms of invitation. And of course, people don't know Jesus. Like, man, we know what it's like to be lost, right? And now we've been found by the grace of Jesus for us to go to them and invite them. So let me just finish this off by redeploying our text. You can look down with me, Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Are you sure that you've responded, receiving his salvation from away from God, aversion and obscuring to wholehearted embracing of God by Christ's work alone, training us to renounce ungodliness with worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That salvation enters us, enters us into a life of zero tolerance of sin and into a life of mimicking Christ, being like the one we've seen him to be. Verse 13, and, and then what fills our hearts? Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Waiting takes investment of serious time. Or do we just keep waiting on the lesser things, right? So waiting upon the Lord, investing our hearts to look up to him. Let's wait together. Let's help each other wait together. Verse 14, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Here is Christ's passion in this passage. Christ bought us to be a family of people zealous for the opportunity and cause of getting to engage this life in the world through the Spirit of God, as Christ would. Christ zealously gathering people to himself, and now him zealously doing it through us as we have our hope in him, and we invite others. So, church family, let's freshly hope think through our hope in Jesus Christ. And number two, we are called to be God's people. He's made us people zealous for good works. Let those good works be invitational. Otherwise, if the work, good works aren't invitational, they're not good. They're just works. All right? So at this time, I ask you guys to go please stand with us. And uh, we're going to finish out our, our time of service here with two songs, and we're going to do communion. If you know Jesus, or if you came to know Jesus, even in the middle of the message, we invite you over the next two songs to go in the back and grab a circle where we celebrate union in Christ that Christ died for our sins. Let me pray for us. We'll finish on. Jesus, I pray for your help by your spirit. Um, we thank you for your correction. We thank you for your instruction. And we ask that you would help us to taste greater and higher joys as your beloved possession, fulfilling our design that you've called us to. In Christ's name.